Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about Pope Francis's comments about the things in liturgy being irreversible. This was a really big headline a few weeks back. So uh, Dennis and Chris sit down and talk with me about what actually happened, what it means, what Pope Francis is saying, so on and so forth. Also, we forgot to remind people about our limerick contest, and we said it was going to be the, the first week in October is going to be the deadline. We will do this contest for one more week. We've already gotten quite a few submissions, but I wanted to make sure that you still had time to turn in a submission. So by next Friday, uh, October the 13th, Friday the 13th, have your Liturgy Limerick submissions sent to questions at liturgyguys.com, and you will be entered into the contest. And if you win, you have the best limerick, you win a Liturgical Institute t-shirt. So without further ado, episode nine of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Hey, Dennis and Chris. Yes, Jesse. I like my magisterial authority like I like my jackets. Irreversible. There you go. What I didn't know you had magisterial. <laughs> no, I, I not my magister. Like I like. Oh, when you experience yeah, anybody's right. magisterial authority. Yeah, yeah when the when the Pope says we, Jesse, he doesn't mean him and you <laughs> necessarily. It. Why? Why did he say we then? <laughs> All right, well, hold on. We're getting ahead of ourselves. What are we talking about? What here? are we talking about? We are talking about Sartor- this <laughs> audience with, that Pope Francis gave on August 24th to the 68th National Liturgical Week. Dun, da, da, dun. Dun, da, da. Liturgical weeks are kind of big, long conferences that started really in the late 19th century with Lambert Baudouin and the Malin Conference in um, Belgium. There's that famous anecdote about him bursting into the classroom and exclaiming that active participation is at the the basis of all liturgical renewal or something like or that uh, the mass is the center of the liturgical life so this was this notion that the ideas of the liturgical movement uh should be out to the people so they have a whole week of talks and art and lessons and masses and stuff like that so that started a long time ago and it's still going on obviously 68th it's been going on for a while in mm-hmm. in italy and so the pope was there gave an audience to these people and gave a little address However, the reason anybody is talking about this is because, Chris, the famous line that the news made a big deal out of. Yeah, if anybody's heard anything about this, it's this line that he says, we, we, he and Jesse, (laughs) can affirm with certainty and with magisterial authority that the liturgical reform is irreversible. Right, so it's... The, your favorite kind of magisterial authority and coats and coats right and you would you know any magisterial authority by definition the magisterium of the church you don't want to be reversible <laughs> this is what people are arguing about now Pope John Paul said it, it's the memorial of the church yeah, why, why is it such a big deal you can't go and reverse everything just because you know the new pope doesn't like it or whatever so it, this is not Francis saying hey by the way I, there's some things I don't like or you don't like and you know you're stuck with it he's putting himself in the line of Pius X, Pius XII, Paul VI, and saying all these people thought that the reform of the liturgy was very, very important. Here are the reasons why. And I'm going to tell you now, it's irreversible. 
Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's he starts off by backing way up, talking about the liturgical movement in the 20th century, you know, beginning with uh, Pope St. Pius X. He backs it up. He goes in reverse. He starts, <laughs> he starts in reverse. That's good. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. <laughs> So he, he starts with Pius X, uh, goes to Pius XII, to the council, Paul VI. So he starts tracing out this, what uh, in common parlance might call a hermeneutic of, uh, of reform and of can continuity. You, right. Pius XI gets nothing. Uh, they just you, skip him, right? Pius X to Pius XII, done. Can you explain hermeneutic again? I always forget that word. Yeah. Hermes was the Greek god who went back and forth between the gods and the oh. people and he'd relay the message to them. So it signifies like a proper interpretation. Okay. Yeah. Right, so they often use the word lens after it, a hermeneutical lens. So if you are from Mars and you hear the word 1776, it just is a number. But if you're from America, you know that's the American Revolution. So you have a hermeneutical lens on how to interpret something that's right in front of you. And so that can be done in a number of ways. Vatican II was terrible and everything was bad, so everything that comes after it is bad. Or Vatican II was the product of the Holy Spirit and it comes out of long development. So how you look at something can be how you interpret it. Yeah, and this was a big uh, uh, point by Pope Benedict XVI about looking at the council, reading and implementing and understanding the council through the proper hermeneutic, that it wasn't a break with the past, something brand new. It has to be seen as something that has come before it. And now Pope Francis is doing just the same thing. Right. So he's in this line of popes from Pius X in 1903, even earlier, all the way through Paul VI and to his own time. And he's saying, guess what? You you people at this conference, you're promoting liturgical reform and it's good for you. And everybody's been doing it for 100 years or more, and guess what? We're going to keep doing it. It's not going to get undone. It's basically what he's saying, I think. So So what's the big deal then? Well, the big deal is some people would like some reversals, if I think. You know, there are certain people who are kind of fundamentally distrustful of the Second Vatican Council, and they say, well, the only true liturgy was the 1962 Missal, and everything after that was a mistake. And that's a denial of the proper role of an inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the council. Yeah, and there's people who are not suspicious of the council, but think reforms still need to go uh, in a more progressive sort of way. You know, so it's not a... Um, that is a very interesting spin, Chris. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Because they're, the people who want to go beyond the council want to kind of undo those pesky texts that say mm-hmm. things like Gregorian chant is the, the pride of place and languages, the mm-hmm. Latin is the principal language of the church. So guess what? It's not getting undone in any way. But what's the remedy? He says, use the missile you have. Do it. <laughs> do it as it says it. Understand it in its depths. Avoid any superficial readings and uh, operate at the spiritual level so that there can be all this great fruit. You know, who would have, who would have signed on to that claim, Chris? Well, that's Pope Benedict, right? Well, the, Pope Francis of, is the uh, one who said it, but it could have been <laughs> Pope Benedict. It could have been John Paul. Paul John Paul Sager. said it. A, number a, lot of, a lot of people would have said that. Right. So this is what this is the context. You know, people just get the soundbite. Oh, Pope Francis says irreversible. Well, what does that mean? And then you read the document, and it's actually a pretty. Uh, how would you say, Chris? Un unremarkable. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a straightforward <laughs> restatement of basically everything every pope has said for the 20th century. Yeah, I think if it's a if it's a challenge to anything, it's not to ongoing or reversible <laughs> liturgical reform. It's about we need to go deeper and we need to change our own mentalities. He says at one point, he says, reforming the liturgical books does not suffice to renew mentality. Uh, and liturgical education is an ongoing thing that has to happen with pastors and laity. So it's, it's, um, 
it's the people who celebrate and who use and who minister to the books, they themselves need to keep being formed by them and by the living right. It's funny because what he's asking us to do, we are doing right now with his document. Well, we hope so. <laughs> Right. But he says, uh, and Dennis, I, I wanted to ask you these things. Oh, he says, uh, today there's still work to be done in this direction of, you know, kind of deepening. And that, that was a key word by, uh, that um, Pope John Paul II would use. You know, we're not changing like, we, w- we can't speak of change like we would have 50 years ago. Now the term is taking what the seed that's been planted and go ever deeper. But Pope Francis says, to do that, there's some things we can do. So, for example, rediscovering the reasons for the decisions taken with regard to the liturgical reform. I think that's very important. You know, when you deal with uh, young people, especially, maybe they had Thank bad, you? bad... You're not young anymore. Oh. They may have had bad experiences growing up with, you know, parish liturgy that was not very transcendent. And then they'd go to extraordinary form. They're like, wow, this is something I've been missing. That's a, that's a good start, but you really have to know if most, say, 98% of the liturgical scholars in the world at the time of the council thought reform was necessary. That was not because they were a bunch of radicals who wanted to undo everything. There were some actual, real, genuine problems. Mm-hmm. So what were they? What were those reasons? I mean, could you just name a couple of them? Well, yeah, one of them was weird holdovers from Jansenism that we've talked about before, you know, that mm-hmm. God is always ready to be uh, offended and you're never worthy to receive the Eucharist. Imagine having to mandate a rule that says it's a mortal sin if you don't go to communion at least once a year. I mean, that's a problem, right? You have to do your Easter duty. But if you love somebody and you want to be united with them and in union with them, it's not a law that you must do it or else, you know, you, you want to be close to the Lord. And they were concerned about about the, the notion of sanctifying grace, which comes principally through the liturgy, not being received, and therefore wars and the world. And, and what's the source of uh, getting that sanctifying grace? The sacred liturgy and the Eucharist. And the active participation in it. Yeah, right. is, is the Council Fathers, some of the reasons here that uh, we need to understand is that the people could authentically and actively, truly participate in the saving work of Jesus made present in the liturgy. No, I don't think they meant that was going to become clown masses and terrible music and horrible architecture and bad preaching. Yeah, you know, like, nobody anticipated the clown mass it's like the nobody ever thinks of the clown mass <laughs> well but this i think is what he's what pope france is talking about go back and find what the reasons the council fathers had in mind for doing these things and if it wasn't clown mass then what was it so to recover these uh, these true uh, reasons another one dennis he gives is overcoming unfounded and superficial readings mm-hmm. okay does that happen Absolutely. If someone just says, oh, active participation, that's aimed to be considered before all else. Oh, we have to give everybody something to do, as opposed to full participation in the life of the Trinity, the dialogue of love, the you as a member of the mystical body being sacrificed and risen and experiencing the effects of the Paschal mystery. That is a much deeper reading. Superficial reading is, oh, I have to hand out bulletins and get the donuts ready. Right? That's not active participation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard that uh, churches should, uh, disp- uh, should be characterized by uh, noble simplicity? I have heard that, but it's not true. Superficial, so, superficial reading, reading right? Yeah. Noble superficial beauty. Superficial beauty. All right. What? Oh, what? So the third one he gives is by a, only a partial reception of what the council has given us. You think of any examples there? Oh, I mean, so for one example would be music. So the council talks about the integral role that music plays in the liturgy, and it, and it documents four different categories but we only really focus on a couple of them and not even the primal category yeah our ma our the novus ordo mass is still kind of in practice kind of uh resembling the the low mass or the recited mass prior to the count it's not it's not mm-hmm. a full it's only a partial right. uh, reception or practices that disfigure it the pope mm. says we need to overcome practices that disfigure the liturgy 
What does he mean there? Clown masses again. <laughs> clown masses <laughs> treating things too casually or art and architecture that's not very I feel like deep. clown mass is the answer to all of those. Well, you know, it, it, in a way, it kind of encapsulates all of them. <laughs> no. right? Because if, oh yeah. if you don't know, that's not for the clown mass. That's for your critique of the clown mass. If you don't know that the priest is a, an image of Christ as the head of the mystical body and that you, in fact, remember the mystical body, dressing up Christ like a clown and have him goof around and juggle. I mean, that is not what's happening in the life of the Trinity, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's happening, you know, after mass. So what defines the liturgy then? Well, this could have come right out of Pope Benedict's mouth, right? He says, what defines the liturgy is the implementation in many signs. So that means like sacramental signs and symbols of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which means what? The offer of his life to the point of opening his arms on the cross. So life, death, resurrection, and this happens in a constant way, he says, through the rites and the prayers. Obviously, this undoes the idea of clown mass, right? This is Mm -hmm. very serious, continuous, reasonable theology. And then he says this happens in in the rites and then in the person, the priest, and in the word proclaimed and in the people. So very traditional, very traditionally minded stuff. That's the context in which he says this is irreversible because he wants all those realities to be lived more fully, not just tossed away because people don't do them well. Yeah, Christ the high priest uh, on the altar, the paschal mystery, I mean, is the baseline of what happens at the liturgy. Yet, I mean, you know, just in a larger context, I heard, uh, I read something by Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, and I think Cardinal Saras says this, Pope Francis said this before, there's still some necessary catechesis about the essentials of the liturgy that has to go on, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how uh, in in many Catholic consciousness, consciousnesses uh, is the idea, Christ the high priest extending his arms, offering himself in perfect union to God the Father on behalf of the whole world. Is that uh, on the tip of the tongue? No, not often. <laughs> no, so this is the type of thing that uh, he's saying in this address is this is this will help combat a superficial, partial reading of what the council gave us. This will help us to recover the what was on the minds of the council fathers is this idea of Christ the high priest. And you know what Pope Benedict said was the best way to uh, have people love the mass of the council the, to, the do it the, to do it the right way to do it right yeah. yeah so i think he knew that there were some people who were kind of fleeing to a place of, of safety by going to the extraordinary form the best way to have it received well is to do it well to, because that, fully we haven't really seen that yet after since the how since often the council. how often do you hear that very thing i mean where can you go to see the mass celebrated According to the Liturgical <coughs> Institute. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had something in my throat there. Sorry. Right, and that takes a certain amount of asceticism, and we're going to have a podcast in the future about asceticism, which you give up your own personal preference and you become conformed to the liturgy. Well, if you're being, if you're being conformed to something that's not in conformity with the, what the church asks, not in conformity with the true nature of the liturgy, because the missal has been not done well, then that's a problem. And so this is why it matters. Use the missal that we have and do it beautifully and well. Now, of course, Pius, I'm not Pius, but Benedict said, you know, we have the extraordinary form for particular reasons. People are attached to it and he wants people to reconcile with the church. But I don't think he ever indicates that that's going to be the future, that the 62 or, missile. Or the ordinary form. What about it? I, I, he's not, he doesn't indicate it that it will ever be the ordinary form. No, it's the, by definition, it's the extraordinary form. Mm-hmm. And that someday these two things are going to, um, I don't know if they'll become one, but they're definitely going to reinforce to each other. To become one. Sorry. So you could read it this way. Now, he's, he's not here. If Pope Benedict were here, I would say, <laughs> oh, excuse me, Father. Don't what, you have his number? What do you think about this very much? This, 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 was this your intention about the, 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 the? I would say, 
did you anticipate that the extraordinary form would become the ordinary form? Or do you think that the extraordinary form will therefore make the ordinary form even the more normative missile because it's celebrated beautifully and reverently and loved? How about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked that How about before. that? Yeah. All right. What else? Well, this whole question of irreversible and magisterial authority is a bit confusing, I have to say. Because usually there's a standard procedure for invoking magisterial authority, and that comes in different kinds of documents that have different kinds of names, and therefore they have different levels of authoritative insistence, right? So an apostolic exhortation is one thing, and a constitution of a council is another thing. I I still don't know those things, but... Well, you'll have to take our course on liturgical documentation and law with Monsignor yeah. Dempsey at yeah, the we Liturgical should, Institute. We should bring him on to have him explain some of that stuff to me. You know, what he wouldn't a, put up with your nonsense. That's probably sure. not. What authority an audience to the participants of a of a conference have? I I don't really know. Um, yeah. So I don't either. But I think maybe a helpful comparison is is it, it was about a week or ten days after this that he wrote another letter that kind of overshadowed this address. People talked about this pretty hot and heavily for about a week, and then it was on to something else, namely this motu proprio called manum principium, where he changes the code of canon law. Oh, but we're, um, we're yeah, going to talk we'll, about that next week. Yeah, we'll get yeah. into that next okay. week. But I mean, just consider the types of addresses. I mean, this is an address to a variety of participants at a at an annual liturgical conference versus a motu proprio written on his own authority that actually changes the code of canon law. I mean, that's clearly something that is uh, much more significant and important in terms of authority and the uh, acquiescence. That, right. uh, and one way you can look at it, too, is he gives all this thing about the history of the 20th century liturgical reform, all the popes, the council, all that stuff. And then he says, after this teaching and after this long path of all these people, we can affirm with certainty and magisterial authority that the liturgical form is irreversible. I don't know that necessarily means I'm declaring with my magisterial authority. With, with Jesse just, and I. It, yeah, your, your <laughs> royal we authority. That it's the, the collective magisterial authority of all these people who pretty much said this is what we ought to do and he's just kind of the next guy in that line. Yeah, well, you know, the details have to change. Right, uh, adaptations and translations and the rest according to people and time and circumstances. That, that too is a different podcast. But these things that won't change, maybe we've hit upon one, uh, that the liturgy is essentially the saving action of Jesus Christ, the high priest. I mean, that's a non-negotiable. And that's that is irreversible. That's mentioned in this document, that yeah. it's the action of God himself who performs this liturgy, liturgical act on the behalf of his people. And after that, he talks about the importance of the altar. That, too, is an irreversible point. The altar will always be and forever at the center of the Catholic. Do you disagree with that, Dennis? Yeah, imagine if he said, I declare with magisterial authority that the altar will always be an irreversibly an image of Christ. Well, You can't do that. <laughs> what do you mean? What if somebody comes in the future and says, we're going to make it something? No, it's just, <laughs> it's just the way it is. You know, documents. Use your word. Ontology. He's making an ontological statement about the nature and purpose of the altar. Yeah. Can't reverse that. Right. Although I suppose they could have Vatican III and just decide as a group of bishops that the 1962 missile is the new missile again. Well, didn't Chris, didn't, didn't you say? But if he did, the altar would still be at the center <laughs> of the... Chris, didn't you say yeah. there was um, some document that came out that the, this missile will never change and it will be... What was that? People like to oh, yeah. hang the council, their hat on. Council of Trent. Yeah, we're truly prepared. I think it's in 1570, this document called Quo Primum. It's by Pope St. Pius V. And this is the uh, this is the, the letter, I guess it's a letter um, or constitution, by which he promulgates the 
Missal of the Council of Trent, mm-hmm. which ended in 1463. So 10 years later, he writes this letter, and I think it's inside there that he says, you know, this missile shall not be changed in the future for mm-hmm. ages and whatnot. But of course, it has been changed. That's like saying compact discs will be the only way people listen to music for the end of time. <laughs> Is that wrong? Yeah. MP3, baby. Oh, you young kids. MP3. But I mean, you know, that's why we call the Extraordinary Four Missile the Missile of 1962, because that was the most recent version of the unchangeable missile <laughs> that had happened since the Council of Trent. So in the details, yeah. these things can change, but these major principles, Christ at the center, the altar, he mentions in another place, he calls it popular. But it's, I don't know how your text reads, Dennis, but in each case, pop, can you see the air quotes here? Mm-hmm. Popular is, uh, is in the quotes. What does he mean by, and what does he not mean It means mean by mob rule and popular vote. Whatever the people want. No, 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 no. no, no. It means it's fundamentally for and on behalf of and by the people the people remember the, the people li- by the people the popular liturgical library that um, Virgil Michael started out oh in yeah college, right? and it wasn't that popular I don't think but it was for the people fortunately the word popular meant of the populace back then and less so uh, whether it got approval by the, the mob so like pop liturgy would be a magazine we could find we could find a magazine popular liturgy popular yeah. mechanics was not like po- mechanics who were good at parties right it was po- <laughs> mechanics who were regular people popular who to do science this popular yeah. there's lots of that stuff right and so the point of all this is the same point that I think everybody makes the Vatican that Vatican II was an inspiration of the Holy Spirit it was consensus of many popes it came about after a long time the missile that it produced is meant to be understood properly celebrated well reverently the rules are meant to be followed it's supposed to be done beautifully and well and there therefore that's not those things are not going to get undone the the, mm-hmm. the majority the uh, magisterial teaching of many people in the history of the church in the last hundred something years has come to this conclusion and it's not going to get undone so dear person who is mad at pope francis relax <laughs> <laughs> to quote our favorite priest at Mundelein, Father Gus Belasquez, just relax. Is that what he says? He says, <laughs> yeah, he used to be in charge of the, the pre-theologians who were the brand new people on campus, so they were mm-hmm. always nervous. Oh, am I going to do that? You know, he was, just relax. He used to say, you're not going to be ordained tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Until that day comes right. and you're ordained tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, you know, being relaxed and docile, this is maybe one of his last points, is the liturgy is meant to be a transformative experience mm-hmm. on you, the participant. Uh, I'm not to go in and transform the rites of the book. Rather, I go in, participate in the rite in a relaxed yet uh, uh, energetic way, and I somehow become transformed by the experience. Speaking, wait, do you guys have something else? Experience. Speaking of relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, You're a little too relaxed over there. Pay attention. Well, listen, I've only had one cup of coffee, so I'd have to have have another. But... We should answer a liturgy question. Okay. Bring your vast experience of this, because if you get this wrong, it'll be reversible. So we, if their answer is so right, <laughs> it will be irreversible for eternity, just like quo bodies. No, quo. Quo bodies. <laughs> quo primis. Quo primum. So, primum. Before we get started with yes. something irreversible, let's back it up a little. We back come backwards. <laughs> All right, liturgy question. <laughs> Oh, this is way better than the first time we recorded this podcast. (laughs) So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, 
it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? And now, we have a question from David Hasselhoff. Is that no. right? Well, David Remelhoff, oh. I think he's, I think they're related. I wish David Hasselhoff sent us a question. Uh, awesome. Was it Kit? Was that the... Kit, no, Kit was, was the car from Knight Rider. Yes. Yes. Nice, right? uh, this is going to be one of those rare times where I ask you two to focus up, please. <laughs> <Sorry>. All right. <laughs> David is an avid listener of the podcast, and he says, What, if anything, are people in the congregation to do immediately before, during, and after a deacon or other person incenses the whole of them? And I think he basically wants to know there's... Sometimes there's bowing, who's bowing, are they standing, that type of stuff. Does the deacon mm. ever do that? Yes. Okay. Does the deacon ever come to incense the people? Yeah. I yeah, usually so, see servers doing that. Uh, yeah, no, it would be, uh, uh, I suppose the, the normative minister would be the deacon, otherwise one of the acolytes, that okay. is the server. And so after the deacon would incense the celebrant and maybe other con-celebrating priests and maybe other uh, deacons, he would go to the front of the sanctuary and... As a general rule, before anything is incensed, the, the altar would be the exception. Before a minister incenses anything, he bows to it, then he incenses it, and then he bows again. And what uh, incense signifies is, I mean, we only incense sacred things, Book of the Gospels, Blessed Sacrament, altar, the minister, the altar. Crucifix. Exactly. And the people, mm-hmm. the assembly, right? And so... Um, the deacon would approach the assembly, bow to them. The people in the assembly, traditionally what happens is uh, if you were to, to incense the, the priest, the, the priest would bow to him. The other uh, deacons, say, would bow to the one incensing. And so the assembly, likewise, would bow to the deacon. If they stand up first, though, right? Yes, they would be standing. So he comes up with the See, and even the posture stand. of standing, uh, you know, it's kind of a readiness, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, there would be the incensing, and again, the, the assembly is being incensed because they're a sacred and worthy object. Does they, he bow before incensing? Before. And then yeah. the congregation does not bow? Yeah, the congregation bows back to the deacon at the same okay. time, and then the deacon incenses okay. the assembly. Is that about the head or about the waist? The head. The head, mm-hmm. okay. And, I mean, they're, they're a precious object that is being given over to God. They're a fragrant right. offering of incense being about to be sacrificed to God. That's what they're meant to be. That's why they receive this incense. Um, so then the, the deacon would incense them. And then at the end, just as if he were incensing the book of the Gospels or the minister or the, anything else, he, he would bow to the assembly again and the assembly would bow back. Mm-hmm. Two bows each. Yeah, bow, at the, bow before and a bow after. And in the meantime, what should you be thinking if you're in the assembly? That I am a precious sacrifice about to be given over to God. I am a member of the mystical yeah. body about to be sacrificed on that's this. That's why I'm worthy, and that's bow, why bow, I'm being. Bow, 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 bow. Okay. okay, so that's what I think the answer nice. is. Nice. All right, and then I also had a conversation with him afterwards that went something like this. It doesn't matter what the right answer is. You'll probably end well, up doing. came to the right place. It doesn't. It, it probably your congregation will do whatever it wants to do anyway. But knowing that, I, that's a question I've actually had for quite a while. But sometimes the congregation doesn't know what to do. Well, sometimes congregation doesn't know what to do because they never see or smell incense, mm-hmm. and so it's too foreign. 
Um, Do it yeah, every week, it, people will figure it out. Yeah, but the details is one thing, but the real spiritual content is the other. Sure. And that's really what uh, people should see. Great. All right, David, I hope that answers your question. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.